Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I went to college in the early 1990s, early to mid-1990s, and there was a rule there across the land, actually, about what posters you had to have in your dorm room when you were in college in the 1990s. Some of these have remained, uh, some of the policies have changed, but when I was in school, there were two uh, that were uh, mandatory. One was a poster of Van Gogh's Starry Night, (laughs) still very popular. Uh, and the other was the movie poster of Pulp Fiction that was, uh, that was also up there. And for my roommates, that poster from Pulp Fiction, the film by Quentin Tarantino, that was the closest they would ever get to a Bible study. Because if you know that film by Mr. Tarantino, uh, Jules Winfield... Uh, uh, a professional, um, when he would meet clients, he would always yell a Bible verse at them to intimidate them, Uh, like any good preacher, right? That's what we do. (laughs) It was supposedly from Ezekiel 25, 17, and he would bellow this verse at them, and you will know my name is the Lord. I say it's the closest they would ever get to a Bible study, not an actual Bible study, because that verse is not in the Bible. (laughs) Tarantino made it up. It was a mashup of something from the Psalms and some Old Testament prophets, and he put it together, some of it just out of whole cloth, because it sounded Bible-y, and he put that in there. Bible-y is a word. Uh, (laughs) Don't email me. But this is not the only example of people thinking stuff is in the Bible and it's not. Probably the single most famous verse that is not in the Bible but people think it is, is God helps those who... Not in the Bible. Nowhere. Cover to cover. Genesis to Revelation. Pick up that pew Bible. Read all 66 books of the Bible and you will not come across that verse. But many people think it's in there. Because it sounds so much like what we hear from preachers and from Christianity, that spirituality is some sort of partnership, some dynamic duo where God does his part and you do yours and together you make beautiful music together. It's cooperation. It appeals to our ego. I mean, gosh, I get to be in partnership with God. Wow. All right. Me and the Lord, we work together. You may have heard of him, seen some things he's done, Yosemite. Yeah, I'm partners with him. (laughs) This idea is not new. Go all the way back to 1977, the film Oh God with George Burns and John Denver. George plays God and he tells John that, you know, the whole plan was for God to make the earth and then give it to us, and now it's our part. You know, he did his part, now we do ours. This is something that churches either state directly or imply all the time, that they're sort of your part and then God's part, and we do it together. You hear it in church mission statements about partnership, or we cooperate with God to bring about the kingdom, etc., etc. Huh! 
Some of the things you might hear are, you know, if you repent sincerely enough, you, you know, you've got to mean it, you're earnest, then God will forgive you. If you pray the right prayer, God will answer you. If you have enough faith, you know, faith is like uh, those fundraising thermometers. You know, if, you, if the giving goes up, the thermometer goes up. If your faith goes up and you get to the right level on the faith thermometer, then God will heal or do whatever it is you're asking. And we talk about this in terms of salvation. Jesus is there standing at the door, but Jesus is a gentleman. And you've got to open the door. He won't barge in. You've heard this, right? Jesus there with his top hat, his monocle. Gentleman Jesus. He's, he, you can see him right there on the ring screen. He's at the door. He's rung the door, but there's no, door, there's no handle. So you've got to open the door. He wishes he could come in, but he can't. This gets me a little nervous, this approach to spirituality. I mean, if this is a partnership, if any of this is up to me, I don't know. I mean, I'm the same guy that once thought for many years that The Three Amigos was the best movie ever made. (laughs) I'm the guy who, at the age of 24... You know, I could vote, I could drive, I could serve in the military, could buy alcohol. I was fully a grown-up, and I fell into a fountain in front of my (laughs) in-laws. We don't have to tell that story now. Andrea can fill you in on the details. But that actually happened, and I was a grown man. (laughs) This morning, we heard this passage from the Gospel of Mark. In this year, if you're coming to St. Albans, you'll be hearing from Mark's gospel. We'll be reading it through all year. There are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're reading Mark this year. And Mark, just at the beginning of it here, we're meeting Jesus, and it's establishing the themes and ideas for his whole ministry. And Mark is telling the story that I think has some really good news for people who fall into fountains. For people who are not good at studying their Bibles or partnering with God. Maybe the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, you want to, you try to, but you're not so good at the religion stuff. So if that's you, I think there's some real help here in Mark chapter 1 in this passage. And we begin actually in a city, it's really a village, Capernaum. And this is the hometown of St. Peter. Peter and Andrew. Now, Peter was renamed. His original name was Simon, and that's how he's referred to in this passage. So Simon and Andrew, brothers. Jesus is at their house in Capernaum, this little village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, small fishing town. And they're there, Peter and um, Andrew and James and John and Jesus. And Jesus is getting ready to go on tour, but he's sort of laying the groundwork. And as they go into the house, they find this. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Now, fevers these days, you just take a Tylenol or two, get some rest, have some Pedialyte, and you'll be fine. It's not a big deal. You know, we think if you've got a fever, the cure is more cowbell. You know, it's it's not something that's an SNL skit with Christopher Walken. I highly commend it to you. 
But fevers are not things we get that worried about. We know how to treat them. But in those days, if you reached that point in your illness, it means your body was um, really ramping up defenses for something that you may or may not recover from. It was pretty serious once the fever had set in. So there she is lying in bed with a fever. And they tell Jesus at once about this fever. And in verse 31, we read what happens next. Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her and she began to serve them. Now, don't get kind of worried about, wow, she just got healed. Like, why does she have to start serving them, making pimento cheese sandwiches? You know, give her some rest. In ancient culture, and in many places today, hospitality was required, and it brought great honor to a family to show hospitality to a guest. So for her to not do that would be the most shameful thing she could think of. So she honors her household and herself by honoring these guests. So she shows this hospitality. But the reason it says she got up and immediately started serving them is because Mark wants to tell us that her healing was complete and instantaneous to such a degree that she did not even remember that she had been sick. And so she got right to the business of doing what any good person in those days would do, which is to show hospitality to your guests. The healing was complete and instant, like she just forgot that she had even been sick. It was so complete. She didn't need to sit down and gather herself or rest for a bit or have a cup of tea. She was just 100% better immediately. Now, let me read those verses again, and I want you to, um, as I'm reading them, tell me when she asks, when does she cooperate? When does she ask Jesus for help? Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. They told him about her at once. Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. At what point did she cooperate? At what point did the thermometer get to that level where she had enough faith for Jesus to be able to heal her? Nowhere. She's not even conscious at the beginning of the story. She's bedridden with a fever. She doesn't ask for healing. She doesn't show great faith. If God helps those who help themselves, she doesn't help herself anywhere in this story. Jesus does all the work. And this is what I want to offer you. And, you know, you don't have to believe me. Because this is not, I think, sadly, a message that is preached as often as I think it should be. Almost every sermon goes in the following order. Um, you're, um, You're a sinner. I got bad news. You're a sinner. But God forgives you. You are forgiven. Now let me tell you all the things you have to do so you can hold on to that forgiveness. It always ends with what you have to do. How you have to partner and cooperate with God. And Jesus here does all of it. And this is emblematic. This is sort of a symbol, an image that shows us what all of his ministry will be like. He will do the saving. He will do the healing. He will do the casting out of demons. People don't cast the demons out of themselves. People don't heal themselves. Jesus does all the work from beginning to end, full stop. And that is such good news because that's what I need. I fall into fountains. I'm not good at being a Christian. No, don't let these robes fool you. You know? You can't, I can't control my emotions. The thoughts that pop into your head. The anger that comes out of nowhere. All these things. If you could control it, I would tell you to control it and you would do it. But I've been telling you, you guys are the worst. <laughs> you have not improved. 
I mean, if there's areas in your life where you can partner with God and that's working out, more power to you. That is fantastic. But I bet there are whole unexplored continents of your life where you seem not to be able to get it together. And the good news about God, as he is revealed in Christ, is that he's not the one who helps themselves. He is the one who helps you when you cannot help yourself. And he does the work. He is about to go throughout Galilee. He'll be addressing the whole of the human condition. He'll be teaching, which addresses people's minds. He'll be healing, which addresses their bodies. He'll be casting out demons, which addresses their souls. And all these things they cannot fix for themselves, mind, body, soul, the whole person, he will address it because that's what he does. He is the one who does it all. He simply saves. And whether people take Bible verses out of context or make them up out of whole cloth, the message so many places is God helps those who help themselves. And that is not Christianity. That's not the scriptures. God helps, period. God saves, period. God does the work. And this is what he's going to do. It says in verse 38, he goes all throughout the region proclaiming the message. The message that he shows Simon's mother-in-law in action, the message that he will show the disciples throughout this ministry, and of course the message that he proclaims most clearly on the cross. That's where he's ultimately going. It's not you up on the cross there with him. You're not helping him out. He does that all by himself for you. The only way you partner, the only way you cooperate is the fact that you sin, you backslide, you doubt. Maybe that's what you contribute to that whole salvation thing. Luther was once asked, Martin Luther, you know, what do you contribute to salvation? He said, sin and resistance. But God does it all. He is the one that comes to seek and save the lost, i.e. you and me. This is a message that you hear week after week in this place because it is the message of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not to give you more stuff to do to make God happy, but to save you. And we think it's so important that we graffitied it on the wall. Back here. Golden letters. It's from Isaiah 40. And it's the Old Testament passage you heard read today. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that wait upon the Lord, not they that attend church faithfully every Sunday, not they that pray in exactly the right way with the exact right level of sincerity and earnestness, not they that go to Bible study and have the whole thing memorized, not they that have always been nice to everybody and never lose their temper when they're driving, they that always pray for people in line with them at HEB and don't get mad at them. You never get mad at the people at HEB. You pray for those people. I mean, Andrew does. (laughs) No, it doesn't say they that do everything perfectly shall renew their strength. It says they that wait. Those that sit in a position of, I don't know where else to go or what else to do, and I'm going to need someone else to do this for me. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It's carved into the wall. We want you to know this because it is the gospel. You will, as everybody does, revert to some sort of thinking that I do my part and God does his. It's very normal for us egocentric humans. But just know that even in those places, God will help you. God will save you. God will rescue you. And God will redeem you. This is the message. 
that Jesus proclaims in Capernaum, in Galilee, in Jerusalem, on Calvary, and in Waco. Amen.